We're going to take a break from Genesis, and I will explain why. Find, uh, find 2 Timothy. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4. Second Timothy 4. And I want you to read with me beginning in verse 1. And we are going to read down uh, through verse 8. Second Timothy 4 verses 1 to 8. I want to bring a message tonight entitled, A Charge to Pastors. And uh, if Dr. Willis will think about the news today, he will probably know why I'm doing this tonight. But anyway, uh, I will tell you momentarily. Paul says to Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. With great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Found out something yesterday and then uh, this morning opened up my email. And uh, there was an email in my box uh, talking more about this situation. And uh, it got me thinking about this passage. I uh, open up my email today and I get a Wednesday edition of the Biblical Recorder. The Biblical Recorder is our state Baptist paper for our 4,300 plus Baptist churches. And today, the very first article that was listed there was an article about the passing of Dr. M.O. Owens, 105 years of age. He was the founding pastor of the church that I came to Pitts from 21 years ago, Parkwood Baptist in Gastonia. Uh, again, 105 years of age, he has died. Now, folks, he was pastoring and preaching every week until just three years ago. And so he was pastoring and preaching until he was 102 years of age. He did what few men ever do. He outlived 
three wives. Milton Holifield, our leader for the North Carolina Baptist Convention, said, and I quote, His life may have ended on earth when he was welcomed into heaven, but the influence of his life will live on through those who came to know Christ, through his witness, and those who were discipled through his Bible teaching. Jeff Long a uh, senior pastor there at Parkwood who preached my anniversary uh, Sunday uh, last year. Uh, he said such leaders, or, or he said leaders such as Owens pave the way for the current generation taking risk for the sake of the gospel. He said, and I quote, the way he treats people, the way he preaches the word, the way he approaches life with grace and dignity, he truly is a godly man. He said, if you ever interact with him, it's evident from the very beginning, and it's not age. It's having spent a life walking with God. A 2013 Baptist Press story recounted how M.O. Owens at age 11 uh, was at the SBC in Memphis, Tennessee on May 13, 1925, the day that something in particular was birthed. Do you know what it was that was birthed? Does anybody other than Dr. Willis know what was birthed in our convention on 1925, the year 1925? No one, okay? What is the very first item that shows up in the mission section of your budget that gets the largest amount of funds from us? The cooperative program. That's right. He was there at the meeting as an 11-year-old child when Southern Baptists voted on that. He said, I remember very vividly how excited my dad was, how delighted he was. And I do remember so well uh, that he was concerned about enlisting other pastors. Owen said of his father, the late M.O. Owen Sr., who pastored two churches, he was the only pastor from our association in Orangeburg County, South Carolina, who attended that convention. Now, folks, imagine being at that SBC meeting where the cooperative program was voted in. What's so significant about the cooperative program? Well, previous to that, just about every Sunday in churches, there would be a representative from one of our schools or one of our agencies that would be in your church and before the time of preaching, he would get up and he would be making a plea for funding. Whether it was foreign missions, whether it was one of our seminaries, whether it was disaster relief, whether it was... Sunday school board, whatever it happened to be, the old societal approach where somebody would show up and they would make an appeal to the congregation. Missionaries would have to come home on furlough and go around to churches making appeals. 
And as you can imagine, everything that's supported in Southern Baptist life, uh, the societal approach was a very uneven way of funding our missions and our ministry. Because a speaker might get up and he might show pictures of orphan children. And orphan children certainly stir hearts. And so the offering that day might be big. Well, next week in your church, somebody else from a school might give up, uh, get up before the congregation, and his pictures would not be quite so stirring. And so the monies collected for that particular institution might be rather meager. That's how we did funding before the cooperative program. Now the cooperative program is essentially the general fund for Southern Baptist. Our agencies, our schools, disaster relief, WMU, so many things are funded through cooperative program so that somebody different is not getting up every week and giving an appeal for offerings. Again, it was voted in 1925, very significant. Well, as I was thinking about M.O. this morning, I thought, you know, uh, looking at his life, thinking about his life, and the way he lived out this text I want us to examine tonight, this is certainly a worthy reason why to put Genesis on hold for a week. And look at this. Uh, M.O. was a leader in North Carolina. He was even a leader nationally among Southern Baptists in what is referred to as the conservative resurgence. Many years ago, men became very concerned about the direction of the Southern Baptist Convention. We were beginning to show signs of encroaching liberalism. For example, the first church that I pastored up in Virginia, we had a pastor in our association who told me personally, so this is not hearsay, He said, Scott, I was at Southeastern back in the old days under the old guard. And he said, our professors told us that there was no such thing in the Bible as a place called hell. And that's what we were taught. Ned Matthews, who followed M.O. Owens at Parkwood, told me again personally... He said, Scott, when I was at Southeastern, I was taught specifically that there was no such thing as the return of Jesus Christ. Men were being taught the Bible's not the Word of God, no such thing as hell, no such thing as the second return of Christ. These were just some of the things beginning to happen in our denomination. And so men like M.O. got together and they said, something's got to be done about this. With the election of Dr. Adrian Rogers in 1979 as president of the SBC, the direction of the SBC began to be turned around. Now folks, if something like that had not happened... People today uh, generally believe, and I realize there's no way to prove what I'm about to say because the convention was turned around. But men today will tell you if the convention was not turned around, the direction that other mainline denominations have gone, some of the foolishness that we see those denominations doing today, we would be doing those very same things. It took 10 years to turn things around. 
The core of it, that is. Conservatives had to elect conservative presidents for 10 years. Because the president, when he serves in a given year, only has so many appointive powers that he can make to the committees. And to turn the whole ship around, it takes a conservative president each year for 10 years with his appointive powers, making his appointments before the direction of the whole thing can be turned around. M.O. was a very big part of that. And he was a big part of that in North Carolina. And I'm happy to report today that if you go to any of our six Southern Baptist seminaries, including Southeastern that I mentioned a moment ago, you will find men and women teaching in those schools and leading those schools who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And they believe the core doctrines of our faith. No, Campbell and Gardner-Webb started their own divinity schools to be an alternative to our conservative seminaries. The situation would have probably ended up being very dire. We've got a couple here tonight from a different denomination. They can tell you, the Nivens can tell you the direction their denomination has gone and why they're no longer with it. And we'd probably been heading that same direction, probably. Well, in thinking about MO, I couldn't help but be drawn to a passage like this. What do we find here? We find the last words of the Apostle Paul. And uh, folks, we, we see the urgency of his words in verses 6 to 8. When he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. So what's Paul know? Paul knows that he's passing off the same. And so he's passing the baton to men like Timothy. It's not going to be very long from these words before Nero, Emperor Nero, gives the orders for the Apostle Paul to be executed. And so there's a great deal of emotion in these words. Paul's come a long ways since his Damascus Road conversion. And when we read these words here, he's in a cold, dark dungeon. In verse 13 of chapter 4, he asks Timothy to hurry up, come to him soon, and bring his coat. Because winter is coming. And he's also lonely. He says that only Luke is with him. And so as you read these words, you get the sense that the guillotine has already been sharpened and the executioner is standing by ready to take the life of the Apostle Paul. And so again, it's a very emotionally charged section. In fact, 
There are nine commands, nine imperatives in these first five verses. There's five of them in verse 2. Five commands, five imperatives in verse 2. There's four in verse 5. So between verse 2 and verse 5, there's a total of nine imperatives. Again, a very emotionally charged section of the letter. But folks, there is no fear. Paul doesn't have fear, only faith. He knows what's ahead of him. Paul is about to set sail, not into the shadows, but into the glory of the Lord. And because of that, there's no regret, there's no remorse to his words here. Again, what he's doing is passing the baton on to Timothy. And what he's doing, he's explaining the key duties of a man of God, what what the key duties of a man of God are to be. And so in looking at what he says here, we learn what we ought to expect from a man of God who teaches the Word of God. And congregations learn what they themselves, as they sit in the pew, ought to expect from their pastor. And so there's a responsibility in these verses for the preacher, yes, but also for the people. Now, first of all tonight, where we're going to spend most of our time is in verses 1 and 2 where Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Again, it's a, it's a command. Five imperatives here, and we'll look at them in a moment. Folks, what we are struck by with this string of commands is how serious the Apostle Paul views what he is writing to Timothy. These are not mere suggestions. He's not saying, Timothy, I I, I recommend that you get around to this one day if you feel like it. If it's convenient that you get around to this. You know, at least put it up for a vote. I hope you'll entertain this. That's not what he's doing. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. He doesn't say just simply, I charge you, but what? I solemnly charge you. Great emphasis here. Now, before he gives that command to preach, he, he gives several qualifiers. Let's look at what those are. First, there's the matter of the presence of God. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. Paul is giving a charge to Timothy in the presence of God with the realization also that Timothy's preaching will be in the presence of God. Folks, everything we do is in the presence of God. 
Remember Revelation chapter 1 and 2 where Jesus is getting ready to address those seven churches and and he describes the churches as the uh, candlestick holder. And what does he say about himself in regards to the candlestick holder? That he's constantly moving in and about among the candlesticks. The presence of God. Everything we do is in the presence of God. We would do well to remember that. Secondly, there's the judgment. Timothy needs to understand that Christ will judge the living and the dead. No one will escape. Christ is coming again and when he comes again, he comes the next time not as Savior but as judge. The implication here is that Timothy's ministry of preaching the word will be judged but also that those to whom Timothy preaches will likewise be judged. He needs to preach with urgency and seriousness because his listeners have an appointment with God. And his preaching is to help his listeners prepare for that appointment that they have with God. Dr. Adrian Rogers used to say, and I've told you this before, that there ought to be a warning sign in the lobby of every church Beware what you are about to hear may be dangerous to your judgment. Because what he meant by that is you're going to be held accountable for what you hear in church and what you do with it. Folks, we don't like to think much today about judgment, do we? And yet it's coming. The writer of Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he goes on to describe God as a consuming fire. Judgment's coming. And so Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who's to judge the living and the dead. Eternities hang in the balance as the word of God is preached in churches Week in and week out. I honestly wonder sometimes how much praying we would do before we came to church if we could really get up on Sunday mornings with with the realization that what we hear that morning, everybody is going to have to give an account of it one day. Would it change the way we listen? Somebody may ask, well, what's the big deal about preaching the Word of God? Well, I think the right answer is right here because of the coming of the Lord Jesus to judge the living and the dead. And Paul's words here at the beginning of chapter 4 go back to chapter 3. What is it that we learn about the Word of God in chapter 3? We, we learn in verse 16 that all Scripture, not some of it, not most of it, but all Scripture 
is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching, for instruction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God is God's Word. It's inspired by God. And in chapter 3, he tells Timothy that through reading and studying the Word of God, it leads you, first of all, to a knowledge of Jesus, a knowledge of the Savior. You learn of your sin and of your condition before God and of your need of a Savior. And you learn who He is. He's Jesus. And and then once you're saved, the Word of God continues to have an impact on your life because you learn how to be discipled and equipped for ministry through the Word of God. God's Word does all of that for us. Now folks, general revelation would be the heavens above. General revelation. And and everybody knows from general revelation according to Romans 1 that there is a God. All you have to do is go outside and look up at the sky to see that there must be a God who made all this. General revelation. Nature itself teaches us that. But in order to know this God, you have to have special revelation. General revelation tells us there's a God, but it doesn't tell us who He is or how to know Him. For that, we need special revelation, and that's what the Bible is. The Bible is special revelation. And it's God's Word. And so that is why we are to read it and study it and preach it. That is why in our churches it is to have the key place. We don't worship the Bible itself. We worship the God who gave the Bible. But folks, without the Bible, we wouldn't know this God. We wouldn't know who He is. That's why in the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers tried to get the church back to the centrality of preaching the Word of God. By the way, to those who come into a Baptist church from another tradition, that's why in a Baptist church, the pulpit is at the center part of the stage. That is to communicate the centrality of the Word of God in worship. People tell me all the time of visiting other churches and they don't hear any of this. We've got two families in our church right now that they were visiting some folks at another church near us here. A church very close to us here. Up near Publix. Big church. Big, big, big church. And it was it was a it was a Lord's Supper Sunday and a baptism Sunday and a Sunday morning sermon. And they said, Pastor Scott, will you tell us how in a church on Sunday morning for the Lord's Supper, baptism, and a Sunday morning sermon? 
The Bible was never even open. The pastor never even preached or read so much as, as a single verse. They said the most reference he ever made to the Bible was he said, Y'all know about that Moses fella and what happened to him. I don't need you to tell you that story. You know all about it. And he kept going. They said that was the only reference the entire morning to anything in the Bible. And they said, how, how do you do that? How do you have the ordinances of the church? No Bible. None. Nothing was ever even read or said about it. In a Sunday morning sermon, nothing, nothing was ever read or said. Exactly. What did you even preach? Supposedly that's becoming more and more common out there. And that's sad. That's, that's not just sad, folks. That's spiritually deadly. We are to preach the word because the word is our message. This is our message. And the word that is used here for preach is the same word that is used in Mark chapter 7 when when Jesus opened the ears of a deaf man and touched his tongue and the man was able to speak. Jesus charged the man and those who brought him not to speak about it, but the scripture says they went out and they spread the news, they proclaimed the news of Jesus everywhere. And so clearly the word that Paul is using here, it applies to a pastor standing behind a pulpit, but it's not limited to that. The word for preaching the word here can apply to anybody, could apply to you sitting down with somebody over lunch and sharing the gospel with them. Amen. I I love what Dr. John Piper says. He said, carry yourself back into the Middle Ages where you had a town crier and the king was about to deliver a life-changing message to the community and the town crier would go out in the square and stand up on a platform and say, hear ye, hear ye, the message from the great king. And Piper talks about how everybody in town would gather and lean in to hear what the town crier was going to say next. That is the urgency with which we should be preaching God's word and listening to God's word. Because we have a message from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, I told you the, the qualifiers here. Preach in the, in the presence of the Lord and with the view of judgment in mind. Let's, let's add a few more qualifiers before we get to the actual command. Timothy is to preach the word when it's convenient, when it's not. In season and out of season. That's also an imperative. 
Timothy is to preach the word of God when people listen, when they don't, when they respond, when they don't, when it's easy, when it's not, when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. In other words, we aren't to wait until just the right set of circumstances that suit us. Uh, We're not to wait on those circumstances before we decide to get up and speak the word of God. Folks, if you and I wait, anything we do in the church, if we wait until we think everything is absolutely 100% ideal, we'll never do anything. And then the fourth qualifier here, Timothy is to vary his preaching. He mentions here that he's to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are three more imperatives added to this list. In other words, some preaching has a corrective tone to it. We might say it's in your face, it stomps on your toes. Other is to be more of an exhortation style. Other is, is teaching, it's admonition, it's encouraging. In other words, it, it varies. You don't want to come to church every single week and hear a hellfire and brimstone sermon but you need to hear that sometimes you need to hear different kinds now I think the answer to make, making sure we're covering all that is if we're simply preaching through books of the Bible we're going to cover all these categories because the word of God is written in, in all these different categories some of it's encouragement some of it's corrective Some of it's doctrine, all different kinds. So if we're simply preaching this, we'll cover all the categories that Paul mentions here to Timothy. Now notice the fifth and last qualifier with with patience and instruction. With patience and instruction. Folks, let's admit it. We are all very impatient at times, right? We want to see instant results. And preachers are no different. Preachers are no different. We want to see change in people's lives faster than it happens. I heard a story of a pastor one time that quit the ministry and went in the funeral home business. He gave as the reason. He said, because now when I, when I straighten somebody out, they stay straightened out. <laughs> but you know what? The longer I'm in ministry, I see that people are people. And you know what? I'm in that same category. You got to be patient with people, right? Things won't things won't change overnight. Yeah. William Carey was in. Uh, how how long was? He on the mission, was it 40 years, Dr. Willis, before he saw the first convert? I think it was 40 years. 40 years. William Carey, the father of modern missions. 40 years before, the, before he saw the first convert as the fruit of his ministry. 
So first of all, preach the word. Secondly, let's move on to talk about redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. Pick up reading with me in verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. As Paul points out here, there is coming another season one day. And what season will that be? There's coming a season when people will not want to hear sound doctrine. I do. Yep. Yep. It's pretty sad... When human desires in church want to push aside divine revelation. Marvin Vincent was a a Bible and a Greek scholar who wrote Vincent's Word Studies. Do any of y'all have that series, Vincent's Word Studies? Uh, Go back and, and check what he says about this. He made this comment. He said... The day will come where if people desire a calf to worship. A ministerial calf maker will be readily found. Remember the golden calf? Again, he says, if people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf calf maker will be readily found sad isn't it people will turn away Paul says from sound teaching by the way the word sound here uh, translates a term from which we get the, the words healthy hygiene healthy hygiene People will turn away spiritually from what brings good hygiene, spiritually speaking. And instead, they will seek after those who will scratch their itching ears and accommodate their passions. And so they will turn away from the truth. Even though turning away from the truth, they do so at their own peril... And their own ruin, they will do it anyway. And so what's Paul's point here? Paul's point is, son, you need to redeem the time while you can. You need to preach the word when it's convenient and when it's not. Because the time is coming when that door may simply close on you. And men will not be asking the question, what does God won't, but instead they will be exploring what do we want. And Paul says to Timothy, that day is coming. Well, thirdly, finish what God's given you to do. Look at verse 5. He says, uh, but you... Be sober, literally keep your head. The NIV does a good job there. Keep your head in all situations. 
endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Timothy needs to be level-headed. He doesn't need to let the culture spin his head or get him off course. Paul warns Timothy that he'll have to endure suffering. If you take, a, you take a ministry that goes right along without what everybody wants, and guess what? You'll probably never have to endure. You won't have to endure suffering. But if you give people not what they want, but what they need, what God says they need, you might have to endure suffering. And so Paul warns Timothy of this. He adds uh, that Timothy is to do the work of an evangelist. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that God, God gives the church the office of the evangelist. Now commentators say that what Paul is not saying, what Paul is not saying, Timothy You need to give up pastoring and you need to become an itinerant evangelist. That's not what he's saying. But rather what he's saying is, Timothy, as a pastor preaching the word, a lot of your ministry, a lot of your sermons are going to have to do with evangelism. And, And you need to be ready to do that. You need to be ready to preach those texts that that do the work of evangelism. You need to be ready to share the word of God with lost people yourself. Do the work of an evangelist. You're a pastor. Your main job is to teach the word of God so the saints will have sound doctrine. But Timothy, as a part of that, you've also got to be an evangelist at times. Finally, Paul says, fulfill your ministry. And folks, I want you to think about it. You have a ministry. If you're a Christian, you have a ministry. Let's not just keep these words here conveniently locked away in our minds thinking they only apply to Timothy. No, these words apply to each and every one of us. Because if you're a Christian... You have a ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Remember again the motivations. Judgment's coming, like it or not. You're not going to stop it. Judgment's coming. Secondly, apostasy's coming. Like it or not, men are going to turn away from the truth and be clamoring after their own passions and desires. And and motivation number three is the saints who have gone before us are dying off. And so people coming after them have to pick up the baton. Judgment's coming, apostasy's, apostasy's coming. And men and women who have set the good example for us are dying off. And and that's the motivations he gives to Timothy. It's your turn. Fulfill your ministry. M.O. has fulfilled his ministry. 
I want to go back to Milton Holifield's words that I opened with. His life may have ended on earth when he was welcomed into heaven, but the influence of his life will live on through those who came to know Christ through his witness and those who were discipled through his Bible teaching. He's fulfilled his ministry. The imperative now is that you and I will fulfill our ministry.